Hello and welcome to Session 4 of World Sepsis Congress 2021, A World Imbalanced, Sepsis and Inequity. We have an amazing array of experts on the topic and the session is moderated by Rupa Dot from Women in Global Health. Rupa, over to you. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Rupa Dot, and I'm the Executive Director and Co-Founder of Women in Global Health. Today I'll be moderating today's session and welcome to our session um, on a world imbalanced sepsis and inequity. We will be really talking about issues of equity um, in relation to sepsis and COVID-19 and beyond in, in a broad sense of way. We'll be looking at health outcomes through an intersectionality lens to demonstrate that health inequities based on gender, sex, race, age, ethnicity, health workforce safety, and resource limitations. Um, as this past year has shown us, um, there are inequalities within society that are widening. Um, the inequalities have been magnified. And as this Congress brings together esteemed speakers, I am delighted to uh, really kick off this session where we get to talk about these important issues from a intersectional approach. Um, the format of this uh, session is going to be presentation uh, followed by a Q&A format and just some reminders um, that we'd really like you to use the chat function to submit your questions for our speakers to keep this engaging and, and interactive. I also encourage all of you to um, engage in social media with the Congress and um, provide um, your comments and uh, just engage with us um, from that platform as well. And so um, some other reminders that we have are that uh, we'd like to particularly acknowledge um, all the partners and sponsors that made not only the Congress possible, but this particular session. So thank you for your partnership. Uh, on that note, uh, I'm really delighted to kick off the panel. If you have any questions or comments, do use the chat function. I will be keeping track of that. And a friendly reminder um, that our speakers, if you want to get to know more about them, um, their extended bio is available on the website. We encourage you to check out the website to learn more about each speaker. Um, but I will be providing a brief overview and introduction. Um, so on that note, um, as we kick off this really exciting session, I'd like to invite our first speaker, Dr. Dr. Mamta Swarup um, from Northwestern University, United States. Um, uh, Dr. Swarup is a dynamic, collaborative, visionary, academic, global trauma surgery leader. She has been invited in national and international um, roles, um, visiting professor and keynote speaker and authored over 65 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. She's chaired no, numerous symposiums and mentored over 100 rising leaders. For over a decade, Mumta has excelled as a trauma and acute and critical care surgeon, researcher, and mentor at the Northwestern Memorial Hospital. Um, she also has uh, started her own uh, lab called the Sadana Trauma and Surgical Initiative, as well as has her 501c3 nonprofit, the Sadana Foundation, which aims to build sustainable access to surgical care and healthcare through education and, and research in low resource settings. And uh, one of the other um, fun facts about her is that she is uh, well recognized, including one of um, Oprah's health heroes. So Mamta, I invite you um, to the floor to provide us an overview of factors underlying racial and gender disparities in sepsis management. I'd like to thank the organizing committee of the World Congress for allowing me the privilege of presenting on this very important topic. I have no disclosures. To start this conversation, 
conversation, I believe it's important to define a few key terminologies. First and foremost, I'd like to discuss what exactly is a health disparity. A health disparity to describe any difference in health status, health outcome, and healthcare use that reflects a gap in the quality of care delivered and may be caused by a societal inequity, for example, differential socioeconomic status, and patient, provider, or system level factor that results in differential treatment. Structural racism. Next is a key component of a words that we hear in this space, and one of those is structural racism, which is the totality of ways in which societies foster racial discrimination via mutually reinforcing inequitable systems. And then we have implicit bias, the association of negative attitudes to individuals based on irrelevant characteristics such as race or gender. This has been observed among healthcare professionals. These disparities in sepsis care and in overall healthcare are seen globally. During my presentation, I will be presenting US-based data then could be extrapolated somewhat specifically the structural racism bit and imply implicit bias pieces to other countries and their own systems of inequity. I am not saying that all inequity is created equal. All I'm saying is that some of the themes are definitely similar. I will talk about disparity as a patient would go through our clinical system. So first we'll talk about incidents, then we'll talk about presentation. We'll conclude our time together with some goals for transformation. So first we'll start with disparities and actually who gets sepsis. So first and foremost, men and older populations, people who are immunocompromised, people who have chronic diseases, and those in the African-American and black race also tend to get um, higher incidence of um, sepsis. Additionally, neonates, in the neonate population, there is a very high parallel in insurance payer status, income, race and gender, and sepsis mortality. And this is all despite standardization of care with evidence-based bundles, and the disparity is very wide amongst races. And although there is some genetic variability in host immunological responses and modulation, most of these studies that have been done are predominantly done by and through having whites patients they are very small sample sizes for any of the other races. Other things that contribute are, as we spoke about briefly, um, chronic comorbid conditions. And so there tends to be in black and African-American population, higher rates of comorbidities. This increases the risk of uh, acute respiratory failure in sepsis as well as acute kidney injury. And Patients who are black and African-American are usually younger and have diabetes and chronic renal failure, as well as obesity and HIV. Additionally, lower socioeconomic status and minority race tends to equivalent with 
poor health, lower rates of health insurance, and therefore less access to preventative healthcare services and primary, primary care. Minorities who have lower socioeconomic status and live in rates with high layers of rates of poverty have an in increased incidence of acute critical illness and severe sepsis. Racial bias and racial segregation affect health by limiting the, so limiting the social determinants of health, education, employment, quality of life, healthy fitness, access to medical care, and they also increase exposure to environmental toxins and stressors. And there isn't any precise measure of racial discrimination available. Most of these studies are done based on surveys and perceived attitudes and behaviors. And here we see implicit bias. So now we'll touch base on some clinical presentation. And I'd like you to keep in mind implicit bias and structural racism and how that impacts our patients' decision-making throughout the rest of my talk. So now we're at how these patients present. And so patients are unlikely when they're minority, Black or African-American to be vaccinated in the elderly population. And as these poorer patients have no health insurance, they have a greater burden of comorbidities. And they also have delays in seeking medical care. And because they delay their seeking medical care, they often present very ill and they have a higher risk of acute organ failure and present to the hospital quite ill. Black and, Afri and African-American patients tend to be sicker at the time of cardiac arrest. Also, they have higher usage of alcohol and they have alcohol use disorder, which is most common in Black and African-American patients, Hispanic patients, and Native American patients. And this causes the, these patients to have a higher severity of illness, rates of sepsis, acute, uh, acute lung injury, organ dysfunction, pneumonia, and post-op complications. And here you see a lot of mistrust in behavior patterns, as well as um, things that you could um, say are coping mechanisms for environment. So let's touch base on the clinical management now. Non-white patients are actually admitted to the ICU less often. And this is regardless of when they're risk stratified and they just happen to not be admitted to the ICU as, as much. And Black and African-American patients wait longer to be admitted to the ICU from the emergency room. They also are less likely to be discharged to another medical facility after an ICU stay. ICU stay. Now, some of this may be because there are younger patients and some of them have better family, um, uh, you know, uh, family support, but this definitively needs to be more well studied. And some of the care that is provided um, is secondary to the safety net hospitals that are um, giving this care. And a lot of times it's secondary to the financial constraints and the limited quality improvement. Again, I'm stressing this poor, um, the poverty stricken areas and the no health insurance because no health insurance leads to so much 
uh, disparity in every aspect, access to healthcare, clinical management, and outcomes of patients. And then in preference for end-of-life care, um, African-American and Black patients, as well as Hispanic patients, have very much desire for aggressive end-of-life care. And this is regardless of whether or not the care is successful and improves outcome. And there are studies that suggest race and ethnicity may contribute to discordance between physician communication with patients and surrogates. And a lot of that also has to do with the mistrust that is um, within the patient populations. So now outcomes. In mortality, males and African-American black and black patients have a higher mortality of 1.5 to 3.5%. And they have worse outcomes related to quality of life, emotional and neurobehavioral complications. They have less community integration, and they are, have higher levels of post-traumatic stress disorder. And again, because of this, um, we, we touched on this briefly, likely because of the not having insurance, they are not transferred to post-acute facilities. So all in all, elderly patients, frail patients, and impoverished patients suffer the highest risk of septicemia deaths. Black and African-American patients suffer a disproportionately elevated septicemia mortality, and Black and African-American patients have racial disparities within the domains of, of SES. These are two um, charts that are good um, combinations of everything, and in case the slides are posted, I kept those. So now talking about transformations, how is it that we can actually take everything that we've heard and put it together to make changes. So if we had quality improvement initiatives focused on the safety net hospitals, perhaps we can make some actual change within the system that will change care for any race of patient who is taken care of, taken care of at a particular hospital. If we can improve access to care, which of course is the key to everything, which would allow primary care facilities to be um, more accessible, allowing education to permeate through, um, and then enrolling patients who are actually eligible uh, for insurance, that would be uh, fantastic. And then empowering communities um, through community-based interventions like community-based CPR, et cetera. But I think the ultimate truth would be and to build trust within our community. Now, how actually to do that? I think by any of these above, as I've stated, and number two would be with higher level, um, I'm sorry, by higher level um, policy, et cetera, working on the social determinants of health. So all in all, I think that, that this transformation slide, if we could work on these things, I think that we would be able to build trust within the community and perhaps affect the factors that um, lead to racial and uh, gender disparities. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mamta, for such a great uh, presentation and overview and um, really sharing us with the, uh, the data on the context um, uh, in an intersectional way. So there, as the questions that really came in, and um, it goes back to a point that you were emphasizing is really, you know, in the, in the United States, for example, there is very little um, 
coverage, um, what we call universal health coverage is not a reality here in the United States and um, you know, financial barriers are a key driver as well. There was a question that came in the chat regarding, is there any um, country that has um, a good model on equity uh, or where they have been able to achieve equality? And if you could also in your answer cover briefly what the difference between equity and equality are and why you're focusing on equity in your chat. So I think that I'll, I'll take the second part of that question first so that my mind has a bit of time to think about a good model. Um, so I think equity and equality, in essence, equity allows every individual to get what they need from the system to be successful. Equality means that we give everybody the same things and that's it. So by giving every individual the same, that doesn't really allow them to be successful. However, there are different things that different people need to be successful. And so that's why I'm focusing on inequity and equity versus inequality, because every person doesn't need the same things from the system or from one another. Um, and I think that it's important to focus on equity, not necessarily equality. And when I think about the system and what is a good system, oftentimes I think about the NHS, right? And there are definitively many problems with the NHS. There's definitively many problems with the Canadian system. There are many problems with a lot of these uh, socialistic uh, med medical systems. However, they do allow for every individual to get care and emergent care as is needed. Um, I still remember that my, my father and my mother, when I was younger, um, were able to get milk cards um, and everybody was, was given milk cards. So I think that that's a wasted resource because every individual doesn't need milk cards. And so there are definitely things that are wasted and are, are more towards equality than equity, right? And so every system has things that needs to be tweaked. But I think some of these systems are definitively good systems to look at. And I don't think that there is a perfect system quite out there. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Mamta. And, um, you know, one of the comments that came in um, is, you know, particularly if I understand correctly, social and environmental factors have a more significant role in sepsis outcome rather than the genetic um, aspects of it. So I think your presentation really drove that home and uh, challenging all of us to look at things from a social determinants perspective. So thank you, Dr. Swarup. Um, uh, on that note, I'd like to transition to our next speaker, uh, Dr. Queen Dub um, uh, from Queen Elizabeth Central Hospital, Malawi. Dr. Dub is a consultant pediatrician and clinical epidemiologist. She is also the chief of health services for Malawi's Ministry of Health. She has previously um, been the head of pediatrics and child health at Queen Elizabeth Central Hospital, and which is uh, one of the largest tertiary hospitals 
principles in Malawi in a position she's been holding for some time. Um, she brings an experience of working with a wide range of global health actors in her Ministry of Health role. Um, she led the initiative on saving newborn lives, um, saving children, working with USAID, WHO, um, UNICEF, and many other actors. She has a uh, long career in also collaborating with other ministries in countries such as Namibia, Botswana, Zambia, Ethiopia. And this is just a bit of her extensive um, background. Um, Dr. Doob, I invite you to the floor to provide us an overview of fetal and maternal care and profound impacts that, uh, that deserve a brighter spotlight. Uh, th thank you very much, uh, Dr. Dak. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. So over the next uh, eight to 10 minutes, I'm gonna talk about uh, fetal and maternal care. Uh, profound impacts uh, deserving a brighter uh, uh, spotlight. Now, when you look at um, uh, um, birds across uh, the globe, you will see that uh, 11 million actually occur in the high-income countries and predominantly in health facilities. And um, uh, uh, if you move down uh, to the lower uh, to the lower figure, uh, uh, we still have quite a number of beds that are still occurring at home. Uh, and uh, we've moved quite a lot uh, in terms of women coming to deliver in the facilities. But the bottom picture shows you the, the true situation on the ground, particularly in the African uh, 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 region, but also in Asia, where you have multiple babies sharing one court. I'll come back to this uh, later on, because uh, when we talk about uh, uh, the, the mother uh, newborn diet in as far as sepsis is concerned, prevention is better. And uh, having facilities that can allow us uh, to adhere to IPC uh, procedures is really critical. Now, we know that uh, you know, when, when, when a mother has an infection, the fetus is also at risk. This is an amazing pair that share so many things. And unfortunately, they can also share infection. A very good example is choriamnitis, which is an ascending, when the ascending infection reaches the uterus, the, 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 the fetus can be actually affected. And the impact can be both in the short term, but also long term, uh, where you can end up with a neonatal infection, uh, the, 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 the mother can go into preterm labor, and we all know the complications around uh, preterm birth, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. And this is one of the major causes of cerebral palsy uh, in our settings. And then there's a long list of other uh, injuries and complications. So when we talk about maternal infections and the impact on the baby, the impact is huge, both in the short term, but also in the long term. It has major bearings, even on the economy, but also the social economic dynamics of the families uh, that, 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 that are actually affected. And, and this picture just uh, shows us uh, the, the pathophysiology on how uh, the fetus can end up with uh, uh, hypoxic damage to their brain. And essentially, it's all because of um, uh, some of the uh, uh, fetal cells that are in the brain uh, that can actually die as a result of an infection uh, that has been gotten from the mother. Now, we've known this over the past several decades, and uh, we've known what it is that we need to do uh, uh, to, to prevent and better manage infections. I, I took this from the World, uh, the, the World Health Organization website. Uh, where it was screaming maternal sepsis can kill. 
By taking early action, you can save lives. And they talk about these three basic steps, practice clean care, make an early diagnosis and treat promptly. So for the next few minutes, I'm going to really tackle the middle bit, which is uh, early, early diagnosis. And I'll touch a little bit on uh, 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 practicing clean, uh, clean care. Let me also underline the fact that over the past, uh, uh, past uh, 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 decade, we have seen three major shifts in as far as maternal and newborn health is concerned. There is no lack of evidence. So we have powerful evidence base. What is it that is causing maternal sepsis? What is it that is causing fetal sepsis? We have seen a lot of movement around political will. So our political leaders have signed up to all these agreements, SDG uh, targets. They've signed up to, uh, 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 even within our region, these uh, the, within the quality, equity, and dignity network, to even go beyond and not wait for 2030, but get things done earlier than 2030. We've also seen critically that the place of birth has changed. So we used to struggle with a lot of women delivering at home, but now they're coming to deliver in the facility. And that, that, that brings them within our own care and, uh, and management. But when you look at the data for maternal infection and fetal neonatal infections, you will see that we haven't moved much even though the women have come to deliver to us, which brings in the element of, uh, 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 the element of uh, quality of care. And so thinking through, when you look at this maternal sepsis uh, agenda issue, we really need to think through it using the health system building blocks. Uh, what is it that we need to do in terms of data? Leadership and governance. What policies are there that drive uh, the reduction of maternal and neonatal sepsis? human resources, uh, medicines and, and technologies, but also financing. I'll come back to financing uh, later on in the talk. Now, Malawi is one uh, of uh, the countries within sub-Saharan Africa and 85% of our people live in the rural areas. And this is one picture that I took from the net. This is not Malawi. This is a picture of Uganda, just, just to underline the fact that it's not just one sub-Saharan Africa, but this is the truth in a lot of the sub-Saharan countries. And this is where the back of our women are coming from. Uh, we need to keep this at the back of our minds when we, we, we're discussing this element of prevention, diagnosis, and treating early. Now, one of the hurdles, one of the major, major hurdles is investment in diagnostics. A lot of what we call maternal sepsis or neonatal sepsis is based on a clinical picture, symptoms and signs, and very little backup in terms of laboratory diagnostics. So you see a lot of um, unnecessary use of antibiotics because people are confronted with a sick mother in front of them, a sick baby in front of them. They cannot tell which one is, uh, uh, is, is actually causing the condition that is in front of them. We cannot tackle this if we don't invest in diagnostics. So investing in diagnostics has two parts. Innovations, we, we really need to think about where these people are coming from, where there is no electricity. If we have diagnostics that are heavily dependent on, on electricity, we cannot do it. What about point of care diagnosis? We've seen it with COVID that within a few months, we have point of care tests for, for COVID. Can't we do the same? for the other infections. Now, coming back to 
the story of, uh, of, of COVID. We were all geared uh, to make sure that we attain the SDG targets and boom, COVID came on the scene. And our health systems were greatly disrupted. But I personally have learned quite a lot from COVID that it is possible when you have the will, when everybody comes together on one table, you can actually make things happen. And so with COVID, we've seen that it's, 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 it's possible to come up with diagnostic tests. It's possible to strengthen the data systems. It's possible to hire people within a very short period of time. Can't we take the same lessons learned from COVID and translate them to the bigger picture on maternal sepsis and neonatal sepsis? Otherwise, we'll continue to sing this song of antibiotic resistance with all the major impacts of antimicrobial resistance that we've talked about over and over again. But if we don't invest in the proper infrastructure, IPC measures, diagnosis, 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 proper treatment and follow-up for these women, this will be a story that we'll talk for the next decade. Let me remind everybody else that antibiotic resistance will disrupt the sustainable development goals, will disrupt issues around poverty, good health and well-being, reduced inequality, a zero hunger, decent work and economic growth. Let's not take this seriously. Finally, every mother newborn deserves to live. Even in that rural part of Africa, in Asia, they also deserve to live. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Dubey, for um, such a powerful presentation and uh, providing those stark examples. And a question that came from the audience, uh, and this is something that you already set up as you were closing, is that we must you know, reach every woman, every child, every infant. So what would you say um, is... Uh, how can we reach those women that are living in rural areas with preventative measures and the women that are the hardest to reach? Uh, uh, th thank you, um, uh, Chair. So, so two things, really. We need investment around this area. I, I, I spoke about the fact that these women are now coming to us. If you look at antenatal uh, care coverage, they're coming to us, even from these hard-to-reach uh, areas. For Malawi, antenatal uh, clinic attendance is above 90%. So they're coming to us. But when they come to us, they come to what kind of an environment? There's a lot of congestion. Supplies is an issue. When they spike a temperature, do I have the possibility to make a diagnosis? Do I have a functional lab? So bringing, so, so, so bringing these women to us is not the issue on the table. It is us giving the women that which they deserve. Really clearly articulated there, um, Dr. Dub. And you know, your also point about the diagnostic testing is actually very timely, um, and how these uh, you know lessons from COVID nineteen should be taken forward. A piece of work done by uh, 
find and uh, Women in Global Health actually looked at getting testing into the hands of women and many of the points you raised about, you know, um, women not even having the tools necessary to get the appropriate diagnostics um, is, is another key pillar for broader uh, achieving health equity and improving health outcomes. So really well-rounded presentation. I wish we had more time to dive deeper into this, but, um, you know, please I encourage everyone to use the chat function, submit your comments, questions. Our speakers are engaging in the platform so they can also answer that way as well. So um, on that note, I'd like to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Were, um, who will be uh, providing us an overview of combating sepsis to achieve the sustainable development goals, a great transition from the points that Dr. Dubé um, raised and um, uh, particularly Dr. Wuri's background is that he works for the World Health Organization, um, is a senior medical officer in the child health services um, in the Department of the Maternal, Neoborn, Child and Adolescent Health and Aging uh, in Geneva, Switzerland. He's a technical lead and responsible for child health policy, strategy and practice guidelines. Um, uh, before joining WHO, um, Dr. Wuri is a um, Ugandan uh, pediatrician specialist in public health and has over 25 years experience working in this space. He has spent um, uh, 15 years living and working as a physician in Africa in countries such as Uganda and Zimbabwe. Um, so he has a breadth of experience at the global policy level, but also at the country level. So on that note, um, I invite you, Dr. Wure, to uh, the floor to please um, provide us an overview on combating sepsis to achieve the sustainable development goals. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Dad, for the introduction, and uh, thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity and privilege to participate in the, this Congress. So um, I'll look at really uh, place the, the sepsis in the global um, health agenda and how combating sepsis is really critical in achieving the, the global targets we have, for, especially the SDG3. And basically, when you look uh, at uh, the global burden of sepsis, uh, I, I want it to be looked at in two ways. One is that there's a very high morbidity. And that actually means that uh, to combat uh, sepsis, we have to do more investment into managing the cases. The second part is that it is contributing enormously onto the global mortality, global death. 20% of global death is being contributed by sepsis. And therefore, the, our SDG targets, uh, which are really basically around uh, the reduction in mortality, will really show that actually without combating uh, sepsis, we'll not be able to achieve some of the targets we have put across. The second, the second thing I want to, to put forward is to say that, uh, as already elucidated by my colleagues in the previous discussions, in, in the previous sessions, is that really uh, among the countries with the highest burden of sepsis are the same countries where we really need to drive the SDG agenda. They are the same countries that are behind the SDG agenda. So it's very, very important for us to put that context uh, as we discuss and move forward on this issue around combating sepsis to achieve SDGs. And just as it has been elucidated by my colleague, uh, Dr. Dube, 
is that maternal sepsis is a big issue. Uh, pediatric sepsis is a big issue, and sepsis contributes to the to the mortality in these two age groups, both in maternal and perinatal period, but also in early childhood. And it's very, very important to realize that if we have to achieve our SDG targets, then we need to address uh, sepsis in order for us to be able to, to stop this preventable death. Of course, we should also realize, and as uh, it has already been shown in the previous session, that actually uh, patient safety is very, very important. Even when we receive these patients in hospitals, we really need to be able to ensure that along their care pathway, we are able to, to prevent the, the sepsis by ensuring that we have very good IPC measures in, in place. But now, what are these digital targets that we, we should be looking at? Just to elucidate this, I wanted to just highlight a few things. One, that uh, uh, sepsis is preventable. And so if we can prevent sepsis, we can reduce maternal, neonatal, and child mortality. And I think that should be at the back of our mind. Because if we don't do that, then we might not achieve the maternal mortality, which is our target 3.1. It will impact our target 3.2, both neonatal and under five mortality. But not only that, it will also impact on the S target of 3.3, which deals with infectious diseases like HIV, TB, malaria, and other infectious diseases. So it's very, very important for us to, to look at it in that context. But also, uh, as it has been discussed in the previous session, the issue around uh, care, the care we provide. So if we don't provide universal health coverage, then we might not be able to, to, to prevent and have early diagnosis and prompt treatment. So it's very, very important for us to look at it in that context that all that will affect the outcomes in sepsis. Who is at risk? I think that's very clear. I, I don't need to, to go into details in that, but neonates, pregnant women, infants, old people, those who are hospitalized and immunosuppressed are the ones at the greatest risk, and we need to look at that. But I just wanted to, to also highlight that, uh, and this was also brought up by Dr. Dube, to say that the common problems uh, our children have are the same problems that actually lead to sepsis. The issue is about how are we able to diagnose those in the right time and provide the right treatment. And I think that is very, very important. So when you look at the burden, as I'll show you, the, the major causes of mortality in under five uh, are really around pneumonia, uh, diarrhea, meningitis, neonatal infections, and all these are going to be impacted because of sepsis. And if, uh, that really means that we need to address them if we have to achieve the SDG targets. And we should not forget that we are already five years gone. We are counting down now, uh, or we are just 10 years to the SDG target, and that's very, very important. If you look at maternal causes of death, if you, the progress we have made, yes, but still proportionately, sepsis is contributing a big chunk of that. 
And therefore, I think the WHO's response has been to really work with the governments and, uh, and partners to really uh, be able to, first of all, we need to understand the burden of the disease. This is very, very important, but also to provide guidance on sepsis uh, prevention and management, and also have some strategies on how to combat this. And I think that is very, very important, and I'm happy that some of these are being discussed in this Congress. So this strategically, I think uh, it's very, very important to look at how we can prevent and then have other recognition. And I think as highlighted, the issues around how can we recognize sepsis early enough and take action. And this really means that the health systems should be responsive. I, I think I, I liked it at the beginning of the, the session today, this afternoon, uh, where uh, Jeremy Hunt gave those stories, how can we make sure that those stories don't repeat themselves? So there are two areas that we need to focus on. One is the primary prevention. And for me, this is the most important, especially in the vulnerable populations, that we should be able to improve their hand washing hygiene, improve availability of water, but also make sure that they are able to uh, to read the services they need. And then the second prevention, which is really prompt uh, recognition and treatment, which really depends on which health system you are in. So we need to look at the health systems and see how we can support them uh, deliver on this. And of course, the issue around case management, which is very, very important because we, if once we have had the diagnosis, we should be able to provide the care that these people need. And of course, uh, depending on the system to be able to support those that need our support. And, but I wanted also to highlight the challenges. I think we should not forget that we have challenges, especially in the countries where we are having a big burden and where we countries are behind the, on their SDG targets. Scaling up of preventive measures is very, very important. The issues around uh, proper diagnosis, uh, I think like it has been highlighted before. And of course, the antimicrobial uh, resistance that we should all recognize that is going to impact on this. So this, there's still a danger that we might not achieve SDGs unless some of the things are addressed. Uh, of course, the gaps, we still have gaps and we need to look at these gaps in order for us to be able to address the issues and especially around the diagnosis. How can we simplify recognition, both by the parents, but also by the, the primary level healthcare workers to be able to recognize. So in conclusion, I want to say that really uh, without us addressing sepsis, we shall, we shall not be able to achieve the sustainable uh, development goals because the mortality, maternal mortality, newborn mortality, under five mortality, uh, sepsis contributes a big chunk of that. So if we don't combat sepsis, we may not achieve those targets. So we need to have a global effort in concentrated on combating sepsis in order for us to achieve our SDG target. Thank you. Great, thank you, Dr. Wari, for your presentation and also making 
the connectedness um, of the agenda of sepsis to the SDGs and especially the SDG um, three on health and well-being. Um, you've received a few different questions and um, I'd like you to see if you can try to answer them. A lot of them really go down to what's happening at the country level. Um, how many low and middle income countries are actively working on national initiatives to fight sepsis. Um, and um, second, uh, secondly, what's come in is what improvements um, have we done globally in terms of providing access to sanitation and healthcare to the most poorest um, populations in the world, as it's been mentioned that these are also the countries with the greatest burden of sepsis. Uh, thanks very much for, 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 for that. So. I think there are various steps that have been taken to, to do this. One, I think, is that all governments recognize that sepsis is, is a big area that needs to be addressed. And by coming up with a WHA resolution, meaning that governments have politically made commitment, like my colleague mentioned, that political commitment is there. The second aspect is that a number of countries have devised strategies on how to address most of the challenges that lead to, to sepsis. As I talk now, we, we, we have provided even guidance around how do you address uh, newborn sepsis, even at community level? How can we get and be able to pick those children at community level and be able to manage them and, uh, and prevent the consequences of, of sepsis? So that is there. The third thing that I think which is very, very important is that countries are looking at this as part of their strategies to achieve the SDG agenda. If we, most countries have very clear strategies and what we need as the global communities, how do we support these national strategies to be put in place to uh, address the agenda? In terms of water and sanitation, I think there's a big effort uh, as we talk now that uh, a number of countries are working, even looking at not only even the communities, but even now our health facilities. You'll be surprised that a number of our health facilities even lack uh, adequate water for, uh, to, for them to actually even practice the IPC we are talking about. There's a big effort and a number of countries are really looking at how to improve their water and sanitation. I would say UNICEF has taken on this as it is a, is a leader in this area. Uh, on our side, we are really working around the health facilities to improve water and sanitation because it's very, very important. Like somebody said, if these women are coming, we should make sure that we, we are going to offer them good services. Thank you. Great, thank you, Dr. Hawari, for emphasizing that. And uh, Dr. Dubey had come back on this question on the political will that was raised, and Dr. Hawari, you talked about it too. Um, the political will in signing documents is great, but we really need to go beyond that into seeing um, investments in particular areas, particularly in the case of sepsis. We need to see investments in health workforce, training, infrastructure, equipment, supplies for diagnosis, information systems, tracking sepsis, and accountability frameworks. Um, so, you know, again, building on this theme, I'm um, uh, delighted to invite our next speaker um, who does not need an introduction, but I will still provide an introduction is um, Dr. Uh, Nirajan, uh, also known Tex Kison um, from Global Sepsis Alliance Canada. He is the current 
current president of the Global Sepsis Alliance and the past president of the World Federation of Pediatric Critical and Intensive Care Services. Um, he's uh, held uh, additional roles such as being the vice president of medical affairs at BC Children's Hospital and is a professor of uh, pediatric and surgery um, and emergency medicine at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Um, and clearly he is a big advocate of um, addressing the issues around sepsis and equity. So Dr. Kisan, um, I invite you to the floor to provide us an overview of the disproportionate burden of sepsis, especially in children. Thank you very much, Rupa, and I'm really, really pleased to be here. I must say that uh, my colleagues uh, so far, Queen and Wilson, have really done a very good job and makes my job a lot easier. And in indeed, the morning session with uh, Chris Murray, Jeremy Hunt, and others, Keith Martin, Hans Klug, have also put uh, the, the sepsis in the light it should be. And it is not only a clinical disease, there are other uh, policy and politics that plays into it, as Queen also mentioned. Now, this uh, issue of sepsis in children, when I started out years ago, was quite a lonely uh, sphere in which to work. But over the years, I've gotten to know some uh, Solwoods in the field, Queen and Wilson and Farhad, and they have made it a lot easier and the burden a lot easier to carry. Now, some of what I was going to say, uh, Wilson has already uh, mentioned and Queen has mentioned some. So what I'll try to do is bring context to what they have um, said so far. And the first thing I like to mention is that for me, I think of sepsis as a medical problem. We've heard the etiologies, delayed recognition, treatment, etc. It's a socioeconomic problem, economic problem, as you heard Mamta mention some of that, the issue of poor education, later poor health seeking behavior, power distance index, no money in societies where women are not empowered to take care of their children makes a problem a lot worse. It's a political problem that deals with government priorities, as Keith mentioned earlier on today, staff shortages, uh, poaching of staff, drug shortages, etc. And Paul Farm said it very elegantly when he said many political borders serve as semi-permeable membranes, quite often uh, open to diseases and yet close to the free movement of cures. And there are many inequalities of access can be created or buttressed at borders when the pathogen cannot be so contained. And this is exactly what we are seeing in the, day, in the present uh, COVID era. And I think we've seen the inequities. COVID has really... Um, uh, laid bare the, um, the ugly underbelly of inequities across the world. And uh, the point I'm trying to make it with this issue of sepsis, the reason for thinking of it like this is that we at the clinical side or the bedside alone are not going to solve the problems. Um, as has been said by Lee Garrett years ago when it came to pandemics, we need everyone in society, we need the actors, lawyers, we need politicians, we need clinicians, we need the dreamers and even the poets. Now, um, you saw the slide from Wilson already, and you can see the disproportionate burden that is born in the younger population is by physics, as it saw. More than half of the incident, the incident cases of sepsis in the world in this uh, Lancet II um, study last year uh, were in children, 41% um, under five years of age, and you can see um, 
a quarter of the deaths were related to sepsis and 24% neonatal deaths. So this is high in itself and it's really stark to show that more so in the neonatal population, while during the millennium developmental goals, we made gains in the under five mortality, the neonatal population was left uh, begging for more attention. We heard about the highest burdens being in the um, sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, and there is an inverse relationship between socio-demographic index, which is an index of wealth education, um, uh, um, and sepsis incidents, and mortality. And one can argue, well, um, in these sort of areas, um, the reason why there is a higher burden of sepsis is because of the larger uh, population base in children. And when we look at a population pyramid in sub-Saharan Africa, and this would be similar to Asia, uh, Southern Asia, there's a large pediatric population in many countries, all half the population is uh, the pediatric age group. Whereas in Europe or, the, or North America, you can see the inverse uh, population. And uh, that was also mentioned by Jeremy Hunt, the population differences. However, I think that the mortality um, goes beyond the burden in children and the mortality and morbidity goes beyond the differences in the population uh, base only. And it has a lot to do of what uh, Queen spoke about, infrastructure, medicines, functional health system, the political will and government, what Wilson has dedicated as a career to, and what Fahad is um, certainly working on at the Gates Foundation. Uh, because when we look at death from severe sepsis and septic shock, a recent study has shown that if we use North America, sorry, there are, there are wide variations in the number of deaths or the, um, the odds ratio of dying. But if we use North America as a reference, children in Africa are likely to die eight times more, in Asia, almost four times, and in Latin America, South America, almost three times more. So again, there are disparity, and much of this can be um, laid bare on the issue of uh, the standard of living prevention resources, etc. Now, um, when we look at other things, we look at, uh, we've heard about the issue of antimicrobial resistance, and this has been laid bare as one of the top 10 threats by the WHO and can reverse all the gains in medicine we have. Well, the countries that has the greater number of neonatal deaths caused by antimicrobial resistance are the, the countries with the num highest number or the highest contributor of deaths. And I think that um, this will not be corrected alone with clinicians at the bedside, but in every um, strata of society. And Queen has uh, given some of the issues with laboratory, et cetera. So this is a major problem that, as I said, need advocacy and, and um, the will of um, governments, et cetera. This is even more stark, and this is looking at pneumonia-preventable deaths with access to effective antimicrobials in the under-5 population. And it is very, we in the uh, sort of well-to-do countries, it is very stark to see that over half of children in in, those, in many of the low poorer countries, I do not have access to antimicrobial agents. So we have two things at play here. We have 
the issue of antimicrobial resistance in those countries. At the same time, we have lack of access to effective antimicrobial agents. And I think those things go hand in hand when there are no good checks and balances um, to really um, get antibiotics to people, right time, right dose, um, uh, etc. We also have the influence of politics, religion, and celebrity when it comes to vaccine. Now, and this is a map, um, sorry, the map for years in 2008, there were very few vaccine-preventable disease outbreaks in um, somewhere in Asia and a few in Africa. Come to 2010, there was a lot more, 2014, it was across the world. And many of those are in children also, a disproportionate burden. And there are a variety of uh, issues there. There's the politics, religion, the celebrities um, who can sway populations and uh, were anti-vaxxers. Anti and we see this now playing out again in the era of COVID. In fact, it is stark that in some areas, the vaccines are going to lay into waste, even in poorer countries. And we've heard earlier on this morning, um, the issue of vaccine hesitancy from Pauline Patterson, who framed it very nicely and showed the reason where disadvantaged populations who are more likely to get sepsis are more likely to be hesitant or not trust vaccines and trust the, the health system in general. Um, antibiotic days that can be averted by pneumococcal vaccine, about 11 and a half million days. Again, um, these are, this is not something that the clinicians alone can solve because big pharma have been overcharging poor countries for vaccines for years. And if the countries cannot afford a vaccine, even now as we see maldistribution with a COVID uh, vaccine where there are no ethical uh, sort of responsibility um, to each other, you can see that this is a problem. And this again, the pneumococcal uh, um, diseases here inadvertently uh, raises the burden in ch children. Now, come to the era of COVID. We've heard about the sustainable developmental goals and we've heard um, that uh, Wilson and, um, and Queen has said the issues of gender equality, education, clean water, etc. <laughs> immunization and prevention all plays into um, sepsis. Now, the fact is that before COVID, we knew, and Wilson made it clear again, that we need to put our foot down on the accelerator. We needed to in, uh, increase uh, sort of um, our efforts in global health for children and maternal health and immunizations. But healthcare disruptions during the COVID period um, can result in hundreds of thousands of more under five deaths. And I think that we have not really seen the final, the final chapter of this story has not yet played out in many parts of the world. We can see what is happening in India today. And um, I think it's waiting to see what is happening in Africa. At the same time, the pandemic has disrupted immunization in over 70 countries. And we know that illnesses and deaths will spike from trauma and malaria, et cetera, as has been seen during the um, Ebola epidemic also. In fact, the estimates have shown that there is reduced coverage uh, because of COVID-19 for four, child, four childbirth interventions for mothers, parental uh, administration of Eutertonics, antibiotics, anticonvulsants, and a clean birth environment. And that would account for the modeling I've shown an increase in 60% of maternal deaths, 
and the, ma the malnutrition addition to receive coverage of antibiotics for pneumonia, neonatal sepsis, and oral rehydration would account for 41,000 addition child deaths. And when we look at a modeling based on scenario one to three, which is realistic scenario of 10% decrease in healthcare uh, to 50% decrease as seen during the Ebola period, and um, using um, uh, the modeling um, uh, that was uh, propagated by uh, the um, Gates Foundation investigators there, we find that um, based on maternal deaths may range from the low scenario of 25,000 to 113,000, and its, uh, child deaths can range anywhere from uh, over 400,000 to almost two, over 2 million deaths. So this is a big problem, and as I said before, that the final chapter is not yet written and over the next little while, unless we understand these issues, we understand that models in the rich world will not work for uh, children in the poor world, uh, we are going to be up against it. The other thing is that you have heard about, we've heard about mortality from sepsis, but the morbidity, the mortality is the tip of the iceberg. Strange to say that morbidity is a major problem. And the growing evidence we know our, our group has done a lot of work showing that in-hospital mortality and post-discharge mortality are equal in, the, in six months post-discharge. And in many cases, post-discharge mortality are higher than uh, mortality in-house. So we have to think in terms of when we, uh, how we uh, transition uh, children back to these communities because many of the post-discharge mortality are not being recorded as such, and hence we are not seeing the full impact. We talk about post-septic syndrome, and we've heard a lot of it in adults, and you will hear more about it in other talks on long COVID, et cetera, of tired, feeling sleepy, uh, more ill, stress, post-traumatic stress disorder, nightmares. I think the issue that is very different for children is the neurodevelopmental issues in children. And if 40% of children return back for care, and if neurodevelopmental issues continue in a prolonged period of time, we are going to have children who will not achieve their greatest impact, and we are going to be um, in a society that is poorer for it. And I think that has a lot to do. Uh, the implications for children from the resolution is all of the things that has been mentioned, prevention, educated workforce, treatment, um, et cetera, um, disaster and pandemics, inadequate research and uh, attention to long-term consequences. So I'd like to stop with this. I think that right now um, we like to say, think in terms of uh, we are all in the same storm. Yes, we're all in the same storm with COVID. We're all in the same storm, but we are not in the same boat. And we can see this inequity playing out again and again. And I would like to, my colleagues uh, uh, worldwide to join us in this quest because what we do at the bedside is very, very important. But how we advocate uh, around the world is also important. Indeed, um, Advocacy is so important. William Sawyer, the presidential address for the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene in 1944 said, no country can live to itself in disease prevention. A failure of one is a failure of all. And Richard Garrett, 1997 said, and this is important for children, the solution to these children problems are the solution to our problems. 
of one thing I'm sure, how they and the disadvantage around the world fear is what will clearly determine the destiny of us all. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tex, for um, just a very comprehensive presentation and also just really making the case of uh, strengthening all health systems as we are strongest as the weakest health system in the world. And, you know, very clear message on that. But, you know, related to uh, really the burden of sepsis in children is the impact of adult COVID-19 um, deaths on children. Can you tell us a little <coughs> bit more about that too and how uh, the impacts of adults um, uh, on COVID-19 deaths are impacting children? I think that it is. So much we can speak about this. And I know going through and looking at Africa in the days of uh, the big HIV um, epidemic, we found that there was a lost generation of parents. And those children had to be raised by grandparents um, who could ill afford um, support themselves. When we look at COVID right now, and it struck me how stories matter and what Jeremy said this morning. And uh, Looking at um, the news, just, uh, I've seen again and again where families, um, poor families in which the parent has to go out and work because they're in the service industry, there are six children at home and they can ill afford um, rent. They are very much into um, uh, sort of very food shortages, etc. cetera. Um, and this person goes out there, gets sick and die. The family now is left with... Uh, um, inability to pay rent, inability for food, et cetera. And I think this, uh, while children are unable to really voice their opinion in many cases, the loss of all the adults we've heard in this uh, era of COVID has had a tremendous impact. And um, during the period of time, um, the young kids, especially those who are in school, the young people, I think that they've impacted greatly by seeing what the parents have gone through, loss of parents, loss of supports, et cetera, that while they, children have been um, uh, relatively spared of the COVID, the emotional toll on them and the stultifying of their possibilities is a major problem that can even be more egregious. Thank you, Tex. And, you know, you're highlighting what's been uh, all throughout the session is the social determinants of health yeah. and the interconnectedness of um, those those drivers and, uh, and how COVID-19, again, has magnified existing inequalities and widened them. Um, and as we nearly come to this um, end to this really exciting um, session where we've covered sepsis from an inequity lens, I'd like to invite our final speaker, um, uh, Dr. Farhad uh, Iman from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in the United States. Uh, Dr. Iman is a physician scientist with expertise in maternal and newborn health. He completed his undergrad and medical scientist training in biochemistry at Stanford University, and he joined the foundation in 2017. Um, he has a um, pretty extensive uh, research background uh, that you can check out his bio on the uh, scientific program for this Congress. And on that note, I'd like to um, ask uh, Dr. Mon to please provide us an overview of addressing inequities in diagnosis and treatment of sepsis and provide us the foundation's perspective as well. Uh, the floor is yours, Dr. Iman. Thank you, Rupa. And thanks to um, Mamta, Queen, Wilson, Tex, the earlier speakers for setting the stage so well for such an important topic. Uh, with a potential for major impact if tackled. Um, and, and I really loved, uh, Dr. Wilson, where I, your, your statement that without tackling sepsis, we will not achieve 
our, our SDG goals. Um, I'll come back to that one in a minute, but I'll, I'll start a little more broadly with uh, our goals at the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So we, we often wonder uh, and try and identify the areas of greatest need um, and greatest impact, and, and specifically where those intersect. These are most easily found in areas of health and disease that are often not pursued um, um, by the efforts undertaken in the high-income country settings in public research or in the private sector and pharma. And really nowhere is this more stark than in the areas of maternal and child health, due in part to the aversion uh, and fear to include children uh, and pregnant women um, and even premenopausal women in clinical trials due to perceived risk, um, as well as to the fact that these are less lucrative commercial markets and less developed. Um, and, and so this leaves women and infants uh, um, often ignored uh, by, the, by the very large and substantial machinery um, that exists for public and, and global health and, and their diseases truly neglected. Um, so on our team, we wish to, to turn the lens around and turn the lens of scientific discovery um, to make sure that new tools that are being built are, are purposefully driven um, toward utility for women and for infant health. Um, and so uh, let me, let me this, this overview has, has been provided earlier today in a couple of different ways. So I'll just quickly summarize it. So in, in terms of child mortality, the greatest burden of disease uh, is in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. And so you have 93% of child deaths occurring um, in uh, an area that, that, that has roughly half of the world's population. Um, and if you, if you focus further onto neonatal death, um, there is about a tenfold disparity um, between um, settings in uh, uh, low and middle income countries uh, where the neonatal mortality rate is about 30 um, in comparison to where all the resources, uh, both from the point of view of healthcare systems as well as, as uh, devices and drugs uh, uh, can be at the fingertips of providers um, where the neonatal mortality rate is, is closer to three. So this, um, uh, th this disparity uh, is, is quite striking. Um, and although on the one hand, uh, that, that's, that's a difficult piece to, to view and to swallow. The good news is that progress is being made on maternal and infant mortality. And it's, uh, if, if you look at this uh, slide on the, the, the left side of the slide, you can see that um, over a 15-year period, the, uh, a recent 15-year period that you have um, uh, declines in maternal, infant, and neonatal mortality. You'll notice that the most stubborn of those is that is that bottom line and is is the is the one that looks the most flat. Um, that is uh, the the neonatal mortality rate, uh, and and so if we dig a little bit deeper into that, and I'm showing you data here from from a, a study called uh, Amani, um, which is an analysis of maternal and newborn um, uh, health and, and, and death, you, and uh, the, the cause of death and etiology, um, I've starred here the, on these stacked bar graphs for um, neonatal, maternal, and uh, deaths, and, as well as stillbirth, um, uh, the fraction attributable to infection. And you can see that it's quite a significant one. So over a third of newborn deaths are, are due to infection, um, as manifested as uh, sepsis, meningitis, and a pneumonia. Um, and over 10% of maternal deaths and stillbirths. And, and so this, this is area where we can still continue 
to make progress. And if we dig a little bit deeper into that data set, um, you can see here uh, for, from this Imani, Imani study, which, which remarkably um, uh, screened over uh, 250,000 births. And this was a prospective community-based cohort of women of reproductive age. So really a tremendous effort across um, uh, 11 sites in eight countries um, and, and identified, again, that, that over a third of deaths, of neonatal deaths are due to infection. And, and uh, 70% of those are in vulnerable infants, so either small or premature um, newborns. And this really lends us also to this uh, underlying theme and lens of, of vulnerability where you have um, the uh, certainly infection as uh, courses and bouts of uh, diarrhea, upper respiratory infection um, being standard as part of uh, growing up as a, as a child in a world that has an outside environment and that, 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 that kids are exposed to. All of those of you with small children at home um, will know that uh, uh, you have some various uh, um, pathogens circulating and that's uh, through, through households and that's part of growing up and, and your immune system training. Um, but really uh, what we're finding as we look through the data is that it is recurrent bouts of these normal pneumonias and diarrheas that occur in, in uh, infants that are already vulnerable to begin with that, that, uh, that are driving a lot of this mortality. And so it's it's good to know that infection is is and, and sepsis is a, a major area for us to continue to push on to, to reach these development goals. Um, but so what's our toolbox right now? Uh, so there there's a there's a prevention side of that toolbox, and that's uh, things like um, vaccines uh, to babies, uh, uh, practices of care uh, that that uh, kind of uh, maximize infection control. You've heard about this in, in some of the earlier talks. Kangaroo mother care, skin to skin um, uh, 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 care um, of vulnerable infants with 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 mothers. Uh, that that not only uh, has been shown to be good for growth, but also for for decreasing infection rates. So so those are all things and tools that that we recognize that are being deployed by teams on the ground uh, working on implementation. Um, but what else? What else is in the pipeline? Well, there's also promise from probiotics. There's several trials going on now at, at uh, some at, at phase three, looking at the role of the infant microbiome uh, and potential dysbiosis as uh, a means for uh, uh, creating high risk for, for uh, inflammation and potential gut translocation of bacteria leading to increased sepsis. Um, there's monoclonal antibodies targeted at specific bacteria that are known to be bad players that are being considered for being prophylactically given to, to neonates. Um, certainly not something that is in current practice, uh, and, and, uh, um, but as the cost of these drugs uh, go down and as the ability to do small batch biologics uh, becomes more democratized, these are things that, that uh, start to, to fall onto the radar and become feasible for global health. In addition, there's vaccine, vaccinating mothers um, uh, to decrease their pathogen burden, because uh, as part of neonatal sepsis, of course, there's the the uh, or the understanding of the role of vertical transmission, um, not only of good bacteria that set in place the uh, the, the neonatal microbiome that happens as part of the healthy um, uh, process of birth uh, and of vaginal birth, um, but there's also the potential for um, pathogenic bacteria. Um, and so if, if the maternal 
pathogen burden can, can be decreased. Um, there's some thought and some evidence that the, the, the neonatal rate of sepsis would also go down. So this is kind of um, the toolbox in hand, as well as some of the toolbox being developed on the prevention side. Um, on the treatment side, we, we know these pieces well. There's antibiotics and supportive care. This is the, the, the more scant part of the basket. Um, uh, and, and so just framing that as an initial uh, um, uh, quick look at what we have in our toolbox, um, we have to ask the question of, can we do better if we, if we don't know um, more about what we're treating, or I guess rather, can we do better if we were to know more about what specifically we were treating when we call it sepsis? We showed you, I showed you in the previous slide with the Amani study um, uh, the role of infection, um, but what about specific infectious agents? Can we learn a little bit more about that? And fortunately, um, a, a few major uh, uh, impactful studies in the past several years uh, have come out to really teach us um, a, a lot of important things about what are the bad players causing infection in, in different environments, as well as uh, not just hospitals, but also in the community. So I'd like to take quickly summarize an enormous amount of work over several studies um, that, that have begun to answer these questions. CHAMPS, or the Child Health Mortality um, Prevent and Prevention Surveillance, um, uh, is a large multi-center study of child cause of death, including an innovative minimally invasive tissue sampling method termed MIST, <clears throat> which um, for, uses needle biopsy, and uh, as, as you would expect by its name, minimal sampling, um, which has a much bigger uh, uh, social um, buy-in and, and approval than traditional autopsy. And via this uh, method has been able to really make um, specific uh, and, and, and detailed uh, um, cause of death determination. Um, and, and so in, in the initial st uh, study, um, a third of deaths, and, and you can see here, uh, um, it's about 350 um, uh, neonatal deaths being shown on the graph on the top, that a third of them roughly are due to infection. But the, the, and that's, that's the green part, but you see that in preterm babies, it's almost half. And in full-term babies, it's, it's, it's closer to a quarter. So you have roughly a two-fold risk of infection in preterm babies. And so therefore, preterm babies are disproportionately represented in neonatal deaths because of their, again, underlying vulnerability that puts them at higher risk. And when we look at the agents here that they were able to identify via targeted molecular and, 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 and culture methods, it's Klebsiella acinetobacter and E. coli. And you're going to see that as a theme that comes in the next uh, in in uh, the next slide, as well. So uh, a couple other studies here um, that are notable, and these are of just a few to pick as highlights among many many important studies that have been able to to to, to dig deeper and identify details on specific pathogens. Here we have causative organisms um, from Anisa, which uh, is based in South uh, Asia. Five sites, um, over six thousand. Um, uh, 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 cases of, of clinical sepsis, um, and uh, uh, they were able, but only 28% attributable um, to a particular causative organism, and the lead organism of that being a virus, being RSV. So if we think about our empiric treatment, um, and when, we, when we diagnose clinical sepsis, only a quarter of those patients actually have an infection, and the most common infection is actually not a bacterial infection that would be responsive to bacteria. And so here, here is um, echoing the problems uh, and the difficulty that, 
that uh, some of the earlier speakers said, which, you know, diagnosis um, uh, and determination of etiology is going to be hugely important for us to not only prevent unnecessary antibiotic administration from a resistance point of view, but also make sure that we're providing the right drugs to the right kids. This is echoed further in terms of how much we have to learn by a study in Delhi, termed Dennis, um, where, which was at a level, which was from level three referral centers that also identified these same three uh, um, bugs very prominently, Klebsiella, Acinetobacter, and E. coli. Um, it identified a higher rate of, of resistance than, than some of the others, the, the other studies um, uh, that, that have been done. And so again, there's a mixed bag of um, how much resistance is there, what are the specific bugs that are there, and, and you know, does, how much can I trust my eyes and my clinical sense for a baby that, uh, an, an infant that looks septic, um, to, to actually have a, a bacterial cause. I wanted to also comment on, on this that uh, um, uh, there's, there was less of a difference identified between uh, these traditional uh, immediate or early periods of sepsis where, where GBS and other vertically transmitted organisms were thought to be predominant versus the, the late onset sepsis, which was thought to be more environmentally or nosocomially acquired. So that, uh, those studies historically, which had predominantly been based in high income settings, um, this turns out not to be as much the case in this study based um, in, in an urban center. In, in, in Delhi. So, so then what does this teach us? Well, it, it certainly uh, helps us provide real world, world data where, uh, to, to help drive the, 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 the conversation um, about uh, best practices and current empiric therapy. And this, you know, what I'm showing here is an antibiogram that's across the street um, from me, but, but wouldn't it be amazing to be able to, to know not only what were the most common organisms in your specific geography, but also what were the patterns of resistance so that you could more closely target um, uh, therapies uh, in, in, in a, maybe not to an individual personalized way, but at least in a more regional way, um, recognizing that uh, um, uh, uh, we, we now are beginning to have the level of data that allows us to be more regional uh, and, and to optimize uh, treatments potentially to specific areas. Um, so then what are we missing still? Um, most of the data I showed you was for targeted studies for known organisms, and most of that is biased by historical potential to grow organisms in uh, a specific kind of culture broth. Um, it turns out that, that uh, very recently some untargeted molecular methods, um, uh, metagenomic methods that, that can amplify uh, uh, um, uh, evidence of different uh, um, bacteria and, and, and viruses without knowing what they are ahead of time have been able to, to really kind of tell us that we've been scratching the surface um, uh, with these organisms that are easily culturable. This, this is a study that was done in Taco Bangladesh. You'll hear more about this in a, few, in, in a session coming up tomorrow, um, where basically uh, cases of, of, of sepsis and meningitis that, that uh, um, were clinically very ill and had poor outcomes for babies, but were undiagnosed by uh, traditional methods of culture, PCR and antibody testing, um, were, 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 were processed with this metagenomics method, un, unbiased method, and half of those were solved 
And it was never the case that it was one of those usual players, the Klebsiellas, the E. coli's, the GBS's. It was things that one would not have on, on, on the map as a clinician, as a neonatologist, as I am myself. Things like chikungunya virus, which weren't thought to cause neonatal or infant meningitis-like picture. Um, uh, bacillus cereus, uh, tetraparvovirus, things that were thought to be predominantly in livestock and rare zoonotic crossovers being found commonly because we weren't looking for them. So I, I think we're at this really uh, exciting moment where we have better tools to be able to identify and solve some of these age-old mysteries of what are we not seeing and what else is causing illness. We have a level of, of granularity of data that's emerging that allows us to go beyond um, country level or, or, or global level. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot of exciting potential here um, to, to, to continue to bend the curve um, on sepsis. And so with that, uh, I wanted to also just highlight a couple of sessions that are going to have deeper dives into exactly these subjects, one of which um, is the one that, uh, following this um, directly, uh, which is going to look at um, alternatives in the toolbox that like the symbiotics, the probiotics, like the, the, um, the, uh, the monoclonal antibodies, um, and, uh, and, and vaccines to, to moms or even repurposed vaccines. Another session I wanted to highlight is a session tomorrow that, that I'll be moderating, um, which, which focuses both on AMR as well as this novel pathogen detection piece. So please, if those are pieces that, that you're interested in, we'd love to welcome you um, to join those sessions, sessions as well. And finally, I'd just like to close by thanking you for your time and attention and to, to, uh, to inviting me for this session. Great. Thank you, um, uh, Dr. Amon, uh, for this really great closing, wrapping up uh, uh, session because it really talks about the importance of data and the potential of uh, really new tools and the role of diagnostics and really understanding um, sepsis in a whole nother level that has not been possible before. So really discovering new patterns, especially in low resource settings. So all that is a, a great note to close on. Um, we are at time, so unfortunately we won't be able to get to some of the questions that were really raised, but um, I'm really glad uh, that Farad, you have uh, mentioned a few different sessions that our uh, attendees can join to continue um, to learn about um, some of the work that you've talked about and, um, and particularly the diagnostic tools and um, other dimensions of uh, treatment for, se for sepsis. Um, I'd like to take a special um, thanks to all of our panelists who've joined us from different parts of the world um, to really bring this uh, intersectional conversation of diverse perspectives. Uh, clearly, there was some strong messaging around um, we need political leadership. We need the political commitment. Um, we clearly have some already at the high level with political declarations and government agreements, but now we need to translate that into real investments um, at the uh, really structural level and the health workforce level, uh, but also doing this with an equity lens, uh, addressing gender aspects, uh, but also other social stratifiers, um, including stratifiers by race and uh, really, you know, great data presented early on about uh, realities in the United States. Um, and then just looking at the dimensions from an intergenerational um, age aspect and uh, the role of um, environmental drivers as well. So a lot of food for thought, um, but hopefully this is leaving you uh, feeling energized um, so that you can go on um, to look at the issues of sepsis um, from a broader intersection.
intersectionality lens and also looking at um, uh, different opportunities. Um, in closing, we invite all of you um, to visit the World Sepsis Congress website, sign the World Sepsis, uh, Sepsis Declaration. Um, please follow uh, the community on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And thank you to all of our sponsors for really making uh, today's session and this Congress possible. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who contributed to making this possible. Session 5 will be available momentarily, and Session 6 and 7 will follow next Tuesday. See you next week.